Hello, and welcome to another episode of Granite Justice, navigating civil legal issues in your daily life. I'm your host, Shane Cooper, an associate dean at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Please remember as you listen, this podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing said here by either party constitutes legal advice of any kind or creates any attorney-client relationship between a listener and New Hampshire Legal Assistance or 603 Legal Aid or the UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. It is possible that the law has changed after recording this podcast episode where the information shared does not exactly fit with your specific situation. For the most up-to-date information or to get legal help, please visit 603legalaid.org. Today we have Chris Schott, who is the director of the Fair Housing Project at New Hampshire Legal Assistance. Now, Chris, you've been in that specific role for about a month, but you've been at NHLA much longer since 2018 and after interning there in 2017. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Excellent. Thank you for having me on, Shane. Before we jump in, I just want to do one thing. It's, it's just a disclaimer. We receive funding from a grant through the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Just for this presentation, I just wanted to say that the substance and findings of the, this work are dedicated to the public, but these are solely going to be my opinions, and I'm responsible for the accuracy of those statements. They do not necessarily reflect the views of the federal government. Well, thank you for that, Chris. And, and absolutely, this is good to know that uh, we'll be speaking with you today and getting your your uh, feedback, candor, and an opinion. So thanks for that. And so let me jump in uh, with the first question. So the Fair Housing Project work is largely governed by the Federal Fair Housing Act, as I understand it. The first question I have is, then, uh, who is that law designed to protect? Great question. So the law is actually designed to protect everyone. There are a number of protected classes under this this act that basically discrimination is prohibited based on what, being a member of one of these classes. Every single person in the U.S. falls under one of these one of these protected classes. It's just that oftentimes with discrimination, certain classes often are discriminated against more than more than others. Those classes are race, color, national origin, religion sex, which includes gender identity and sexual orientation, familial status, which is generally understood to be basically families and and the number of children that you might have, disability. And then we also have a state law that further protects um, and acts in the same way as the federal law that protects age and marital status discrimination. So if you are either denied housing or or you are targeted due to one of these protected classes, that is what the Fair Housing Act is designed to to protect, discrimination based on one of these protected classes. Oh, I understand. And that is a broad number of categories you've outlined. And just so, as as you said, it makes it very clear clear then that anyone would be protected as they fall into one of these particular categories. And so what kind of protections does the law offer people in this area? So it protects basically having different treatment or having housing denied to you due to one of these characteristics. So some common examples are purely, you know, the most common thing that that most people would be able to identify is if somebody is not having an apartment or a home sold to them due to one of these protected characteristics, refusing to negotiate. Those are the most, you know, easily identifiable ones. But other, it can come in other forms. If there is a, say that you are a tenant and you are being treated differently in your tenancy, like you're not being evicted or anything, but you know your rent is higher than somebody else, and that is due to one of these this protected characteristic, or there are rules that are impacting you differently than other tenants due to this protected class, 
those are some examples. Then, of course, as I mentioned, you know, if you are being evicted for a reason that is due to um, one of these protected classes, that is something else that would be, you know, a discriminatory act that is that is prohibited. And, and so you mentioned that this can come up in the form of sales of a, of a piece of property in a tenancy with with rent. And so if someone notices or is experiencing one of these issues and they think it's based on discrimination, based on a class that you've mentioned, what can the government do to step in if it's determined there's a something bad that's happened here under the law? Is there a specific type of thing that or, or activity that the government would do in a case like that? Yeah. So typically, if you believe that there is some type of discrimination that's taking place against yourself or somebody that you know, you can make a you can do a couple of things. You can either contact our organization or contact 603 Legal Aid, who might refer it out to us for for legal help with the matter. Any of these things can be brought in court if there is some type of discriminatory act under the Fair Housing Act, some type of discrimination against somebody. It can go to court. The other thing is that a complaint can be filed with the Department of Housing and Urban Development. If that route is taken and it's sent to the, the department, they will actually do an investigation to determine if there is discrimination at play. They will begin a process called the conciliation process where they can potentially help reach some type of agreement to with the potential discriminating organization that can potentially resolve the issue. If there's no resolution there, they can take further action. They can bring claims in court or they can just have an appeal through their own administrative a- agency. Well, I understand. And I will ask a few more follow-up questions on some examples in, in a moment. I do want to back up. You mentioned a couple of examples, but just so I understand what it is that you see on a daily basis for the audience out there, what are the most common kinds of of discrimination that you would see in these cases? There was a study, I believe, back in 2016 that about 55% of all Fair Housing Act claims are disability related. I believe that number is is probably higher in New Hampshire. That's that's in part because we are not the most diverse state and we have an older population that can end up having medical disabilities as, as they age. So we are commonly seeing, we, we, we see all of them, but disability is, is probably the, the biggest one, that in familial status. For disability, just as a kind of example, the way that that, that comes out is oftentimes there is this process called a, a reasonable accommodation or a reasonable modification. These are requests by somebody who is disabled to request a change in the rules, if it's an accommodation, or a physical modification to their the, the structure of their apartment to be able to have full use of the apartment, to fully enjoy it. So for the modification example is installing a, a stair lift. So somebody who, who has mo- a mobility disability is able to get into their home and be able to use it. And accommodation can be something such as, you know, service animals requesting, you know, a place that doesn't permit pets to allow a service animal because it's something of a significant need for them to be able to enjoy their apartment. Other things such as if there is an eviction going on due to some type of cleanliness issue or other other issue that has been caused by a disability, that can be an accommodation to to basically hold off on the eviction and, pre- and prevent it so that they can they can get a plan in place in order to resolve the the problems that are presented. Uh, Chris, that's really helpful information and particularly about the fact that disability appears to be one of the most prominent claims that, that we see in this area. And it does make me just want to ask a few more you know, things in that area. So what you're saying is under the law, 
a person with a disability could ask their landlord, for example, for reasonable accommodation or a modification. And are you saying that you see claims come up where the landlord says no to that accommodation or is it, so that may happen, but is it more about the fact that a landlord might know that that claim is there or request is there, doesn't want to do it for various reasons, and then acts adversely against that tenant somehow? Can you just maybe clarify a little bit about how you see discrimination manifest in cases like this? Yeah. So um, just to be clear, in terms of, I think you, you mentioned the idea of retaliation for either requesting one of these accommodations. Retaliation is a defense that is provided by the Fair Housing Act for any protected class. If, for example, you try and assert your rights under the Fair Housing Act and they retaliate against you by, for example, trying to evict you, that, that is a protected act. And so they, they cannot retaliate against you. In, in terms of how we often, just from our cases, we, we, we see reasonable accommodations come to us, they can come at any part during the housing process. You know, oftentimes we are receiving ones that have, yeah, been ignored or, or denied. The reasonable accommodation and modification process is inherently a, a debate about what is reasonable. The person who is disabled has the best knowledge of what is reasonable, but it is an interactive process. The landlord has to engage. At the end of the day, they could theoretically turn down a what they consider to be a, a an unreasonable accommodation request or modification request if it creates an undue burden on them or an undue administrative or financial burden. But at minimum, the, the bare minimum that is required of, under the Fair Housing Act for an accommodation is that the landlord has to engage. It has to be an interactive process to determine what the disabled person needs in order to fully use their apartment. I see. So it sounds like what I'm pulling from this with the Fair Housing Act and some of the things that you see is, at least from where I'm just listening in on this perhaps audience as well, there could be like three different areas. For instance, something right at the threshold, which is before you get into a property, a landlord or a seller of a property may know or understand there's a disability that, that exists and then decides not to sell or not to rent based on that disability. So, so that would be one type of issue that you would see. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that would absolutely be an issue. I, I, I think I think you're identifying three big ones, but it, it's just so, so broad that, yeah, it can come up in a lot of ways. So yes, that what you just identified is absolutely a way that somebody could be discriminated against. So that's the threshold one. And then another one you mentioned is you're in the middle of the relationship. You've rented something or property, and now you've asked for an accommodation and those are being denied. And then there's an argument possibly or a disagreement over what's reasonable. So that was when you described. So there's something that happens after you're into the renting relationship as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, you know, disabilities, they, they might not be something that you have when you start renting apartment, but it's something medically that you get during the course of it. So it could absolutely happen during the middle. And it might be something that, you know, you're not facing eviction over or, or something, you know, you aren't have being, you know, retaliated against or, or anything. There, there's no risk of losing your housing, but you need this this accommodation in order to fully enjoy it. And so their inability to, their denial of that accommodation can be discriminatory even, and, and the action that is being taken is them saying, no, we're not going to do that. I see. And then the other one that I earlier in our discussion kind of started with, if you will, but I understand it's a different avenue is someone has made, made a claim and then they get evicted by the, the landlord because of the, the claim. And that, as you mentioned, is this would be a retaliatory act. And that's a different thing that the, the 
that the law protects for as well. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it would be, you know, that in that example, retaliatory, but there could be things that, you know, even before you've re- requested a reasonable accommodation, that there could be something that leads to that that basically leads to an eviction and the act of evicting them would basically be discriminatory because the basis of that eviction is due to something caused by your disability. So say there is somebody who has a, a diagnosed mental health issue that leads them to hoarding. You know, that that's just one of the symptoms of this mental health issue. If they then receive an, you know, before they've even requested any type of accommodation, they receive an, an eviction notice and, and they their an eviction hearing begins. A reasonable accommodation can still be requested, and the accommodation in this case would be: please halt the eviction so that I can get services to assist with my disability in order to take care of the situation. You can request an accommodation all the way up until the moment of a eviction taking place. Um, the the hearing that is. I see, and so. So far, then, what I've heard is there's a broad number of categories. Anyone uh, would fall into the number of the categories that you mentioned. So therefore, the law protects everyone. And then just how broad of the circumstances can be where one might determine that there's a possible violation of the law here um, means then that there's a lot of options for people in these situations. And so the next question I'd have for you is, if someone out there listening thinks that they have experienced discrimination under this act, as we've talked about these situations, uh, what should someone do about it? What, what would they do next? Yeah, so I highly recommend calling 603 Legal Aid. That is the organization that helps assist us with doing intakes and referrals. They will be able to take your information and they can potentially send send it over to us to so that we can evaluate your case. If not, they'll be able to potentially give you advice or refer you out to somebody else who might be able to assist. It's good to speak with an attorney just to determine because there you know there's a lot of that that goes into the Fair Housing Act and so it might be good to speak with them or or get some advice before you proceed. If you don't want to, you know, get the help of an attorney, you of course have the full as I discussed discussed before, the full plethora of of options to deal with this, whether it be through the courts, both state and federal courts can enforce the act or filing a, a complaint with housing and urban development, who will then begin the process of investigating your claim. That, that's helpful. So you talk with, um, obviously, if you can talk with people that are experienced in this area, whether it's a 603 legal aid or you're referred to an attorney, and it sounds like then there's generally three avenues or paths that you're talking about where a claim could go, and that could either be to a state court or to the federal courts or to the federal agency, in this case, the Housing for Urban Development. Um, do I have that right? Yes. And, and I, I forgot to mention that there is a another option, which is we have an analogous state level human rights commission that, that will basically handle a, a complaint in the same way as housing and urban development would. And, and as I mentioned kind of at the beginning, there are two additional protected classes under our own state law. So if you were to fall into one of those, you would probably go the state, the state court or the New Hampshire Human Rights Commission route. That's great clarification. I was going to ask that. Um, you'd mentioned state as a venue where there's the state law in addition to the federal law that's the main focus of today's talk. And could you remind our listeners again of the reasons why the state might be a way to go or the avenue that you might suggest someone go versus the federal government? Yeah. Um, so again, because they, they overlap, you know, if you are a member of a protected class for race, color, national origin, religion, sex, familial status, or disability, you absolutely can bring it in either venue. 
But if you specifically are being discriminated due to age or marital status, those would fall under the, you, you would want to present those to the State Human Rights Commission in the same exact general form as if you were to make a HUD complaint, it would be a complaint to the State Human Rights Commission. And in your experience, then, have you seen the, the people that you've worked with, do you happen to see them picking a venue maybe more than another? For instance, if it's age and marital status, then they must go to New Hampshire, uh, the state-based route. But but in those cases where you've seen overlap, is there a rhyme or reason, if you will, of going one way or the other? Well, I think going to HUD is probably the most favorable just because they have a large staff and you know they cover the entire United States and a lot of experience with investigating these. And so they are the most common way that, that, a, that a person would go. And so I, I do have to, just from our own pers- personal, while we, we do, of course, assist with HUD complaints, you know, in any type of that, a lot of the time, you know, our biggest priority is helping the those who are facing eviction. So we see a lot of cases that are just in state court where we are defending somebody and helping to prevent them from being, you know, evicted. But in terms of the avenues we discussed, I think HUD is the most common way that people will go, even though all of them are available to everyone. I understand. And you mentioned if you go to the HUD route, you'll typically see an investigation and not as clear yet about what happens when you go to the state or the federal court, but what are the general outcomes of a claim in, in your experience? Yeah, so they have at both the both at the federal level, also our, our state superior courts, and through HUD, the, the what we call equitable powers, which are, are just powers that are able to remedy a problem by tailoring them to to what the conduct was. So, you know, theoretically through HUD, but I think also through, you know, if there's like a federal court case would be similar. They are able to order money damages. They are able to order, I mean, I think the the basic thing is to stop them from doing whatever the the discriminatory practice is that they are being, that is being claimed against them. They are able to order that. They are able to order often that, that a housing provider has to go through Fair Housing Act training. So for example, they would you know, basically probably send them to us, <laughs> if they're in New Hampshire at least, so that we can give them a training on, on the Fair Housing Act and provide them with more information. So they, they have pretty broad power to basically remedy these discriminatory acts. Yeah, so if I take it back to a few of the, and I understand this may not be all of the type of examples out there, but it's helpful to work through some perhaps to see how this works. So we talked about that case of, of eviction, maybe even retaliatory act of eviction uh, based on discrimination or raising the claim in the first place. And what you're saying is that these agency or the, the agency or the, or the courts could step in and essentially prevent that eviction from taking place. That would be one possible remedy. Yeah. And, and that would be something we would generally, I mean, we can bring it up to HUD theoretically, but we can also hope to resolve it, you know, at, at the state court level, level in that in that specific case. And for the cases we talked about where there may be a disagreement over whether an accommodation should should be made, that might be resolved in in ordering an accommodation to, to, to be in, in installed, if you will, in those cases. Yeah. You, so that you would probably, if there was some type of disagreement about, about the reasonableness of it, it could go to HUD and they would be the fact finder. I mean, they would, they would make the decision on whether or not the request is you know reasonable, whether or not it's, you know, an undue administrative burden or financial burden on the housing provider, you know, that would be where it would basically become a case and you're, you're presenting the arguments that, Hey, you know, what is reasonable in this situation? And you also mentioned money damages. I, I suppose that, likely might be a situation that could come up on the 
you talked about some of those cases where maybe you're prevented from buying a home in the first place due to potential discrimination or you can't rent a place or you're denied up front. Is that a time when you might see money damages come into play? Absolutely, because under their pretty broad equitable powers, they can both, is my understanding that they can both do you know remedial stuff to basically make you whole. And also they, especially HUD would have an interest in providing you know basically punitive damages to incentivize them to not be doing this type of conduct again and so the, and I know we've talked a lot here about disability but those they're they're these are all these are available to all of the protected classes if there's some type of discriminatory effect that's going on right and and what advice if if you can provide any or what have you seen help someone with a claim to make it effective i i imagine these Maybe a bit difficult to establish or prove in some cases, uh, particularly in those situations we talked about where you suspect the other side is discriminating based on a certain decision that they've made. How would one go about, you know, documenting or getting the type of information they need to, to uh, be convincing, if you will, to the court or to HUD? Absolutely. So your if it were ever to come to a case or a hearing, your testimony is evidence. What you have observed is evidence. But of course. You know, if there's going to be debate about what was said and what wasn't, it's really great if you can get if you can get written evidence. If you're sending emails or texts, stuff that you can show in writing about what was being said and and when would be helpful. In certain cases where it might not be apparent that you're you you are um, being discriminated against, but you might suspect it. If it's something that maybe talking with another tenant might help you gather some more ev- evidence, you know, that can also be helpful as a kind of act of solidarity of talking with the other tenants. For example, say that you were uh, being discriminated based on your race and you were being charged more in rent than other tenants. It might be good to know, you know, before you, you come to us here at, at New Hampshire Legal Assistance, maybe see if you can find out what other people are paying in that type of situation. So, so that's great. But even if this is something that you know, you have, you know, a suspicion of, but you don't exactly have the hardest of evidence. Depending on the situation, we, we actually have a program that we run here at NHLA on behalf of HUD, which is our tester program. We use trained, what we call testers, to go and basically simulate a, a housing transaction. We do this where we send basically one per, we, we've identified that there is a potential discrimination of one of these protected classes. We would send a tester who is a member of that protected class, and then we would also send a tester who is not a member of that that group. We would then be able to basically analyze, see if they got treated differently, and that can be used as evidence to bolster a claim of discrimination. And that's something that we we would do we would do here in order to assist somebody with provide, uh, providing some more evidence of discrimination. It's what, when HUD does their investigations of a complaint, they very well might, if they determine there is some type of a risk of discrimination, they might request us to send out testers to a specific location to investigate. That is really interesting. I didn't, didn't know that that existed. It's a little bit like a secret shopper situation, but in a really serious uh, situation like fair housing, I didn't realize that that, that even existed. Yeah, I mean, we, we we are not law enforcement, but we, we almost kind of view it that way. You know, it, it's kind of, it is a covert idea, but, you know, we're, we're of course, you know, in these trans, in the, these simulated transactions, we are not, you know, getting people to say anything other than what they would do if this were just somebody who had showed up to, you know, rent. So it, it helps develop evidence of, of discrimination by, by doing this. Well, I think it's good for the in my opinion, at least for the general public to know that this is out there, you know, for those that are out listening, you know, on the 
the sales or the landlord side, it's it's good to know that there there are uh, ways to ensure that the activities are in line with the law. So um, it's it's a little bit like knowing that there are the police out there with the uh, checking speed on the highway from time to time, right? So uh, when you, when you know these things are being looked at, it, it, that influences behavior as well. Absolutely. And, and if I can make a personal appeal, we are always looking for new testers. We will, if you are interested in this and want to help out with our work, we do a training to assist people with being testers. And we're looking for them from, you know, all classes, all walks of life we are looking for, because again, you know, the Fair Housing Act protects everyone. We, you know, we, we, we would welcome anybody to come and, and apply to be a tester. We would provide a training and then we would, once completed with training, be training and, and a, a mock basically simulation of, of one of these tests. You would then become a tester and we could potentially call on you to assist us with in investigating. I should say this is a paid position. Um, it is, I believe, $150 to complete, you know, a flat rate to complete the training and mock simulation. And then it's, a, I believe, $18 an hour for any actual tests that you might do. So someone who's listening to this that's interested in that, um, who would they contact, Chris, for that? You could contact my coworker, Liliana Newman, who I will, I believe, will provide some contact information so that they could re- reach out to us uh, to arrange and schedule some, we, we would do some tra- um, initial trainings over Zoom. Okay. And so that would be New Hampshire legal assistance as opposed to 603 legal aid. Yes, it would be New Hampshire. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Well, Chris, you've shared a a lot of of great information. I've learned a lot from listening to today. Is there anything else you'd like to leave uh, in the minds of our listeners? Yeah, I just want, you know, I, I think we talked a lot. I think it is just the idea that you are protected, that this act is out there. It is a strong act. It is a broad act. And that if you're just able to identify, you know, these issues that you're seeing, please, please say something and, and bring it to our attention so that we can try to, we can evaluate it and see if we can assist. Well, Chris, thank you very much for taking the time out to speak with us on this podcast and getting this information out to the general public. And I want to thank you for your years of hard work with the Fair Housing Project and with NHLA generally uh, and the team there of uh, of working there. Um, So thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Shane. This was Granite Justice, a podcast collaboration of the UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law, 603 Legal Aid, New Hampshire Legal Assistance, the New Hampshire Campaign Legal Services, and the Granite State News Collaborative. Thanks for your time.